Just one thing before we dive into the message for this evening. Next weekend in all of our services, we are going to conclude the service about the last 10 to 15 minutes with our annual congregational meeting. Now, for some of you who may be new, you, you may scratch your head a bit and going, they're going to do that in the middle. Well, we're not doing it in the middle of the service. We're going to do it at the end of the service. But it is unusual for a lot of churches. Uh, most of the churches that I've ever been part of, it was happened on a Sunday night or a weeknight. And there was about five people. And then most of those were staff that came. So I love the fact that we do this on um, a weekend when our entire church family is here. Many of you have questions about the hub. You see the big building that's being built. And, of course, the big question is, you know, when is it going to be ready? So I just encourage you to come back next weekend and know at the conclusion of the service, about the last 10 to 15 minutes, we'll, of course, give you a financial update. You'll be able to uh, officially vote on our congregational leadership. There will be an update on when we believe the hub's going to be ready. And... Um, and I'm going to share a little bit of vision, what I believe God is saying to us and leading for us in this next year as well. So I hope that you come back for that, and we'll certainly include it online as well. But for today and during the month of September, we are doing this series called Unlikely Heroes. And last week I referenced that it is an all-church series and that this is something that I want to see us do and as a regular rhythm of our congregation, a time where from our youngest children to us here as adults in the sanctuary, we are studying the same text, we are looking at the same themes from scripture, and the purpose of that is to provide opportunities for families. Um, I got a text from someone in our congregation who got to experience that and they just said it was great conversation with their youngest kid and their student who was in our student ministries and that's the purpose of it and the theme that is woven or the big idea that is woven throughout all four of these weeks is this that God uses unlikely people at unlikely moments to accomplish unlikely things last weekend we looked at Ruth and the book of Ruth and we learned that God often chooses the unlikely to achieve the unimaginable and while we have a tendency and our default is to make us the unlikely hero of the story that that's not the point that while it may be true that God uses us in unimaginable ways and that we're unlikely heroes we should have the eyes of Jesus and that we should see in others the potential and the unlikely heroes that is in them. Today and this weekend, we are going to focus on how God uses unlikely moments in our life to accomplish his purposes. And when I say unlikely moments, I do not mean and I'm not referring to those surprising moments or those improbable moments when God shows up. When I say unlikely, I'm talking about the unlikely seasons in our life that we don't like. How many know what I'm talking about? Have you, how many of you, and you may be in the season right now, that you're like, I just don't really like this season. I, Lord, I don't know what you're doing. So when I refer to unlikely moments, that's what I'm talking about today. But before we get to the text and before we start talking about unlikely moments, I want to begin by settling a long-time debate. I want to resolve the debate and settle the debate about who the greatest basketball player is of all 
time. Now, I know it's opening season of football, and we're not yet in basketball season, but it works better for my message. So we're going to resolve the debate. The long time it's been debated on sports talk radio for centuries, who is the greatest basketball player of all time? And I'm grateful that I'm preaching this message and not Pastor Ross tonight. Now, some of you may think back to Wilt Chamberlain, Pastor Blaine's decade there, Bill Russell, great basketball player. Some of you may think of Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, fantastic hook shot, the sky hook, changed the game. For others of you, my era growing up, how many love the 80s of the NBA? You can't talk about the Lakers of the 80s without who? Magic Johnson. Six-foot point guard changed the game. Had never seen it before. And then on the other side of the country, you had Larry Bird, number 33. So some may say it's Magic. Some may say it's Larry. Then you move into the more modern area, the late and great Kobe Bryant, number eight. Some could say is the greatest basketball lover time. Some say Shaquille O'Neal. And then, of course, right now, everyone thinks of king james lebron james but i just want to settle the debate once and for all the greatest basketball player of all time is this man can i get an amen for air jordan michael jordan now everyone knows of michael jordan now some of you stick with me don't leave church i'm going somewhere with this but Michael Jordan, six-time NBA champion, and as well, he never went to a finals that he lost. Never lost in the finals. They completed, him and the Bulls completed two separate three-peats. He is the only one that has averaged the most points per game in finals series history. He is a six-time NBA Finals MVP, five-time NBA MVP, NBA Rookie of the Year, 10-time NBA Scoring Leader, 14-time NBA All-Star, three-time NBA All-Star MVP, highest career points per game average in NBA history, two-time Olympic gold medal winner, and he won an NCAA National Championship. Whew. And I stopped at his, high, his top stats. In the, in the early 1990s, everyone wanted to be like Mike. You remember that? In the 1990s, I mean, everybody wanted to be what number? 23. Everybody wanted to be 23. Everybody wanted to do the moves Michael made. I remember being in basketball practice. And do you remember Michael would do this? Kind of. I know it doesn't look the same. He'd back people down. He'd hold the ball out like this. And I remember coach yelling at us, you're not Michael. Stop doing that. What would he do? He'd drive to the hoop and dunk and ah, his tongue would be out. Everybody wanted to be like Mike. In fact, in 1991, Gatorade even went as so far as to create a commercial called Be Like Mike. Sometimes I dream that he is me. You got to see that's how I dream to be. I dream I move, I move, I dream I groove like Mike. If I could be like Mike. Oh. One day. 
many remember that? It's funny, some of our younger staff, they saw that commercial before service started, and they go, since when did Gatorade have bottles that were glass? It's like the little things that young people notice. Here's the point. Just as with Michael Jordan, we often desire to be like our heroes. That's why everybody wanted to wear 23. That's why we copied Michael Jordan in basketball. We see their successes. We see their triumphs. We see the accolades. We see the public attention that they get, the influence that they carry in culture, and we're attracted to that. We're attracted to the impact that they have on people and culture. And when we dream, we can see ourselves in their shoes and we think, I want to be like that. I want that. Earlier this year, my daughter graduated college and at commencement, famous well-known pastor, author, and leadership, leadership expert and speaker John Maxwell did the commencement address. And when he was speaking at the commencement address, address, he often says when he meets students, when they graduate and they come up to him and he says, what do you want to do? He says, I want to be like you. John, I want to do what you do. And then I thought John Maxwell's response was absolutely fantastic. He says to those students who want to walk in his shoes and be like him, he says to them, I know you want to do what I did, but are you willing to do what I did? I know you want to do what I do, rather. But are you willing to do what I did? See, we remember all of Michael Jordan's successes. We celebrate all of his championships, his awards, his greatness. However, we forget there were a few seasons when many questioned whether Michael could even win when it counted. Now, I wish Pastor Christian was here because he grew up in Detroit. But there were three seasons for Michael Jordan, 1988, 1989, and 1990. For three consecutive years, Michael Jordan and the Bulls lost to the bad boys of Detroit in the NBA Conference Finals. Giving them and giving Michael some of his worst failures of his career. And leaving many to wonder if he could ever lead the Bulls to the promised land. How silly that seems now when we think of it. You see, while Michael Jordan may have believed he was the best player on the court and that he would eventually lead the Bulls to a championship, it didn't happen easily, it didn't happen overnight, and it didn't happen without seasons that seemed as setbacks, which were really preparation. He needed those setback seasons against Detroit to prepare him and to shape him into the player that we now know him to be. And the reality is that all of us, everyone in this room has or will experience at some time a season of a setback. All of us go through difficult times. And while we may hear God's voice, while we may sense his calling... And have a vision for his purpose for our life. His calling never happens overnight. When he calls the unlikely to achieve the unimaginable. There's a space of time between the calling and the confirmation. When God calls us there is a space of time. There is a gap between the calling of God and his confirmation. And the spiritual truth that we're going to see in God's word today is this. The weight between God's calling and his confirmation 
is called preparation. The wait between God's calling and his confirmation in us, the wait, the gap there, the space there, is called preparation. When you hear the name Moses, you know the famous Bible character in the Old Testament, Moses. When you hear his name or think of his life, what comes to mind? What do you think of when you think of Moses? Probably you think of the one that God called to deliver the Israelites from the oppression of the Egyptians. You think of him confronting the king of Egypt. You think of him confronting Pharaoh and God using him to send plagues upon the land. You probably think of Moses leading the Israelites out. And at the Red Sea, Moses extending his staff over the Red Sea and them escaping in victory. You probably think, when you think of Moses, you think of the man that God chose when he climbed Mount Sinai. And God delivered and spoke and gave him the Ten Commandments. I mean, these are great victories. These are great statistics for Moses. So good that we find that Moses himself made the Hall of Fame. In Hebrews chapter 11, Moses is an all-time great. He's a Hall of Famer. He was an underdog. He was an unlikely hero of the faith. However, Moses, just like Michael Jordan, had a season or two where it didn't look like he was ever going to be a hero. In fact, there were about 40 seasons for Moses. Setbacks that for Moses certainly would have tested his faith and caused him to question his calling. Moses' story, you're probably familiar with it, but if you go back to the very beginning of the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 1 sets up the stage for Moses being born. At that time, the Egyptians have made the Israelites their slaves. The Egyptians point, appointed brutal slave drivers and they tried to crush the Israelites with unimaginable work. Yet the more the Egyptians oppressed, the more the Egyptians um, were, were evil to the Israelites, the stronger the Hebrews got. The Bible even says that the Egyptians worked the people of Israel without mercy. And finally, because nothing was working for Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, he orders that every baby Hebrew boy is to die. And so amidst, you know the story, amid this mass murder of children, a desperate Hebrew mother has a boy. And she places him in a tiny basket and puts him on the Nile River. And we had know that out of all of the people in Egypt at that time, who discovers Moses? Pharaoh's daughter, the princess. She discovers the baby and she names him Moses and she raises the child as her own. Which leads us to our text for today. Exodus chapter 2, verse 11 through 15. The Bible says this. Many years later, when Moses had grown up, he went out to visit his own people, the Hebrews. And he saw how hard they were forced to work. During his visit, he saw an Egyptian beating one of his fellow Hebrews. After looking in all directions to make sure no one was watching, Moses killed the Egyptian and hid the body in the sand. The next day, when Moses went out to visit his people again, he saw two Hebrew men fighting. Why are you beating up your friend, Moses said to the one who started the fight. The man replied, who appointed you, speaking to Moses, who appointed you to be our prince and our judge? Are you going to kill me as you killed that Egyptian yesterday? Then Moses was afraid, and he was thinking, everyone knows what I did. 
And sure enough, Pharaoh hears about it. He heard what happened, and he tries to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh, and he went to live in the land of Midian. Now, if you took the life of Moses, Moses lived to be 120 years old. Moses' life can neatly be divided really into three chapters. From birth to age 40, from 40 to age 80, and from 80 to his death at 120 years old. Those are three distinct chapters and seasons in the life of Moses. We learn this not only from Exodus, the text that we just read, and the rest of the story that's in the Exodus. Moses is awful. His story is also told in the book of Acts, the seventh chapter. Stephen, before his death, tells us and gives us some background about Moses. So let's quickly look at those three seasons or those neatly um, divided chapters of Moses' life, beginning at birth up to age 40. We just we know the story and we just read that Moses is born and Moses lives a privileged life as an Egyptian. The Bible says in Acts chapter 7, this is Stephen speaking, it says, Moses was taught all the wisdom of the Egyptians and he was powerful in both speech and action. Now remember, up to age 40, I mean 40 years old, I mean move out of the house Moses at least. Up to age 40, the Bible tells us that he was raised in Pharaoh's house. He was raised by the princess. And we just read that he was a powerful man, not only in speech, but in action. Remember, he's a Hebrew. He's a Hebrew living in the king's house of the very people who are enslaving and oppressing his people. How do you think his brothers and sisters, his Hebrews, felt about Moses? They probably didn't look very highly upon him. But then everything begins to change at age 40. And I don't want you to miss this. Look what the Bible says. The Bible says that one day when Moses, here's where everything changes, was 40 years old. He decided to visit his relatives, the people of Israel. And he saw a, an Egyptian mistreating an Israelite. We just read this a few moments ago, but let's continue to look. So Moses came to the man's defense and he avenged him, killing the Egyptian. This is the story in Acts. Donna, if you would, go back to... It begins, he was 40 years old, he decided to visit his relatives, the people of Israel. Now, this version here is the New Living Translation. If the New Living Translation is watching this, you blew it on these two words. In the Greek, he decided is a horrible translation for what those two Greek words. If you have a King James Bible or an English Standard Version, it'll say in your Bible, it came into his heart. So at 40 years old, Moses, for the first 40 years of his life, being powerful in words and action, being privileged by growing up in the household of the king of the Egyptians, the king of Pharaoh, the one who's oppressing his own people, his brothers and sisters, the Hebrews. All of a sudden, at 40 years old, the Greek translation of this, the New Testament is saying that what arose in his heart, Something ascended in his heart, and that something was a calling to visit his people of Israel. And in doing so, he saw and his heart was moved by the mistreating of his brothers and sisters. So what came into his heart? What ascended and rose within him? His calling. 
at 40 years of age, I don't know if it was in a dream or what triggered it, but there was something that moved and stirred within him that he hadn't seen for the 40 years before. His heart and his passion to see his people freed from the oppression of the Egyptians. So, with this newfound discovery, what happens? Moses, he sees one of his fellow Hebrews getting beaten by an Egyptian, and Moses steps in and he kills the Egyptian, buries him in the sand thinking that no one's going to see it. You see, Moses realized his purpose. He realized his calling that one day he would free his brothers and sisters, the Hebrews, but he acts on it, attempting to deliver his brother from the Israelites, but the problem was it wasn't the right time. So the very next day, Moses visits his people again, and this time he sees two of his own, his own kind. He sees two of the Hebrews fighting, and he calls them out and says, why are you beating up your friend? And again, the man replies, who appointed you, speaking to Moses, to be our prince and our judge? Then he says, you going to kill me as you killed that Egyptian yesterday? Go back one more time. The man replied, who appointed you to be our prince and judge? You know the answer to this question? God did. Moses eventually becomes the prince of the, Egypt, of the Hebrews. He becomes their judge. He asked the question God actually had. But they didn't know it yet. It hadn't been confirmed. The problem was God had called Moses, but he hadn't made that confirmation in anyone else yet. And then if we fast forward to Acts about this same time, Stephen says these words in chapter 7. Look at this. Moses assumed his fellow Israelites would realize that God had sent him to rescue them, but they didn't. Do you catch this? Moses Sense the calling. The Bible says he assumed that the people of Israel would recognize his calling. But they didn't. They call Moses out on killing the Egyptian. And eventually Pharaoh hears about it and he wants Moses dead. This puts Moses on the run and begins his second chapter at age 40. The second season. Which goes from age 40 to age 80. And at 40 years old, Moses flees Egypt, and he lives in a distant land called Midian. Say Midian. I asked them to put a map. You may be wondering, so where is Midian? Now let's look at this here. So this is Egypt. This is where Moses would have grown up. This is where the Israelites would have been enslaved, up here in Egypt. Midian is way over here. So what Moses sees as a setback God views as a setup and let me explain this Moses is here and at 40 years old he discovers his calling but no one else had seen it yet no one else God hadn't confirmed it in the eyes and the hearts of anyone else so Pharaoh wants to kill him now and Moses is on the run and he goes here and we don't know the exact way in which Moses leaves, he could have came through here and went through these. This is the wilderness of Shur, wilderness of Paran. This is the Sinai Peninsula. Mount Sinai is down here. This is called the wilderness of sin. Now, if you're looking, Canaan is way up here. The Red Sea 
is here. This is where the Israelites crossed with Moses when they were escaping. He goes down here to Midian. Now, here's where this gets really cool. 40 years old, he's fleeing Pharaoh. It'll be another 40 years before God calls him back to deliver his people. And when God calls him back, look at the same path that they're going to take. They're going to come down here. When they exit Egypt, if you go look at the map, they're going to take the same journey. And here's the point. Could it be, could it be that the space between Moses' calling, when God called him and put that and it sent it in his heart, to the time when God confirmed it was preparation? Could it be that Moses was taking that same journey by himself before he would ever leave the thousands upon thousands of Israelites? Could it be that he experienced that wilderness and some 40 years later when God called him and he had all the Israelites with him, he thought back 40 years ago, I know we can't cross that way. Do you see the preparation that God was doing? Moses had no idea, but God was using that to prepare him for what was to come. The wait between God's calling and his confirmation is called preparation. If you look throughout the Bible, think of Joseph. From the time Joseph had the dream until he was eventually in Pharaoh's, in Pharaoh's house, 13 years. 13 years, Joseph, he spent in a pit, he spent in jail, he spent being forgot about by the cupbearer. 13 years, there was a space of preparation for Joseph before he ever fulfilled his calling. Before it was ever confirmed. Think about King David. Saul anoints King David. God says this to, I'm sorry, God says to Samuel, Samuel, this is the king. This is the next king after Saul. It's 15 years from the time that David is called to be king. 15 years until it's confirmed by God. And in that time, a lot of it, Saul was trying to kill David and David was on the run. 15 years of preparation. If you fast forward even to the New Testament, we talked about the Apostle Paul last week. The road to Damascus. God knocks Saul off his horse, changes his name. He didn't become the Apostle Paul the next day. If you look at the timeline, there was about 15 years. It was eventually Barnabas who would go to Tarsus and get Saul and bring him on the mission. The Apostle Paul had about 15 years. The wait between God's calling and his confirmation is called preparation. Just like Moses, God's calling or purpose may have ascended in your heart. You may have a burning fire within you to fulfill the destiny that you believe God has birthed within you. But my question to you tonight is this. Have you traveled the road to Midian? Have you had the season or are you in the season now? What you see as a setback, could it be a setup for what God wants to do in your life? Could it be that you are in the season of preparation? I want to give you just a little personal testimony on this. Most of you are aware, unless you're maybe new, that I became lead pastor here at ACAC in January of 2020. And for most of you, you see, hopefully you see, a successful succession period. Pastor Rock and I going through this, and you think, wow, okay, 
you know, they did a search called Finding Joshua, and Alan was at a church, and wherever he was, we found him, and whoo, everything was gravy and good. What you don't know is that there was a season in Midian that I spent two years before coming here. A season that was a preparation time. A season where there were unmet expectations. A season of a lot of pain. Probably some of the hardest times that my wife and I had ever gone through were the two years prior to me coming to ACAC in January of 2020. There was a lot of disappointment. There was a lot of brokenness. There was a lot of hurt. There were a lot of questions that my wife and I had. There was a lot of silence from God. I brought with me, I love to journal my prayers. And these two small books are filled with hundreds of prayers over that two-year time. I was reading through them this afternoon. Times where I was praying and go, God, what are you doing? The year was 2006, 14 years ago. I found this several years ago. I had written in an organizer at that time. I had sensed a calling that one day I would be a lead pastor at a church. This is 14 years ago. I was still worship pastor. And I wrote down on this piece of paper. I'll show it to you sometime. I don't think Blaine and Ross have ever even seen it. The type of church that I would love, I feel God calling me to pastor. 2006, think of this. You know what some of the things were in 2006? A multicultural church located in a city. Following a man who would, I was asking God to be a mentor and a friend. And I mean, go through, I, there were about six or seven things. When I found it, I began to just weep and cry. 14 years ago, I didn't even, I'd never even heard of ACAC. And I was nowhere near ready to be a lead pastor. But what I learned in those two years before I came here in 2020, that looking back at these prayers, the thing God was preparing me, my road to Midian, is that I wasn't ready because in those two years, God needed to prepare in your lead pastor. He needed to deepen my prayer life. Because what God knew that I didn't, and even you didn't, was that when I came in 2020, three months later, there would be this thing called COVID that would not only change and flip our church, but it would change the world. That in that one year, in my first year as lead pastor, having never been a lead pastor before, we would face the troubling times of COVID. We would face the murder and the killing of George Floyd that in a diverse congregation would threaten its unity. And then we would face maybe one of the most divisive and polarizing elections of all time. Out of the gate, and you know what God knew two years ago? God knew he was calling me to ACAC. But he said, Alan, I need to take you through a season where you will learn to lean on me. And you will learn to need to learn how to get on your knees when you don't understand and when you don't hear my voice. Because I'm preparing you for a time when you're not going to understand. But you're going to be called to lead a church through those three things. And it was a season of being in Midian. It was a season of preparation. It was the space between God's calling in my life to be lead pastor and his confirmation in his people. That space between your calling and between the confirmation that God has for you is called preparation. There's a familiar verse that all of you could probably quote in Romans 8.28. 
that says, we know that God causes everything to work together for good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. Go back to that word, everything. We know that God causes everything to work together for good. And here's the thing, we cannot compartmentalize God's words. As a follower of Jesus, you either believe that everything is everything or you don't. You either believe that those seasons of setbacks, that those seasons where you don't understand, that yes, those seasons where you may not feel God there or you may not hear his voice, that God uses even the tears. He uses even the brokenness. He uses all of the hurt and the pain and the question. He uses all of that for your good, according to his purpose for those who love him. Forty years later, in the desert near Mount Sinai, an angel appears to Moses in a flame of the burning bush. And God finally confirms Moses' calling. So at 80 years old, and for the next 40 years till the time of his death, Moses fulfilled his calling by leading the people of Israel out of Egypt and toward the promised land. A third of Moses' life was spent in preparation. Would you bow your heads? I would love to pray for those who are in the land of Midian, figuratively speaking. If you're here tonight and that resonates with you, you're in that season where you feel like it's a setback. Maybe you feel like Moses where you're fleeing and you're on the run and you're living in Midian. Would you raise your hand? I'd just love to pray with you. Just raise your hand. Thank you. Okay. Heavenly Father, (laughs) all of us have seasons of preparation. And I just pray for those in this room who raised their hand and maybe they're writing their prayers in a journal like I did. Maybe they're on their knees. Maybe they're tears that are being shed and they're questions that they're asking you and they do not hear you and they are wondering if you have left them or if you have turned your head and are looking the other way. I pray that, Lord, that your spirit, your truth about there being a space, a season of preparation, that you could be using this very hurt, this very pain to prepare them for your purpose and calling. And Lord, just like you were with Moses in the wilderness, just like you were with him in Midian, just like you were with Joseph in prison, just like you were with David in the cave as he was fleeing from Saul, and just like you were with the Apostle Paul when he was living in Tarsus, waiting and being prepared, I pray that you would be with those who raise their hand, those that are watching that are in that season. Guide them and lead them in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Before we leave tonight, we are joined um, by a very special and near and, and dear person, uh, not just this church, but to me, I've gotten to know her over the last year a little bit. I'm going to invite Renee Valak to come forward. Renee is the medical director of Bangalow Hospital in Gabon, Africa. Would you welcome her? <laughs> Renee, it's awesome to have you here. 
She, um, you left Gabon a couple, two weeks ago? Okay. Yeah, two weeks ago. And she's going to be spending a year here in the United States. Now, I had the privilege earlier this year to see her in action. And so I'm a little concerned for Bangalore with you being here because I know how great you are at your job. But you have a great staff there, too. But for this congregation, um, you may remember back at the end of July, I shared with you a couple pictures and, and we talked and we did a love offering during the month of August and I was away during that time and we were trying to raise money for two specific things. You had emailed me and shared with me the picture that um, there was, you needed transportation to get employees because taxis weren't running. And the cost of that van, we needed about $25,000. And then when I was there earlier this year, the pastor of the local church in Bangalow, whose name is Daniel, um, was walking from house to house to, to see he had no transportation. And I was told that a motorcycle would be best. And so we were, we were trying to raise about $25,000. And I just want to um, show off what God does through obedient people. Look how much money you gave in obedience to God. So... First of all, as your pastor, I just want to say thank you for being obedient. $61,000. Those pictures there were of the employees and of Daniel. So, Renee, here's what we did. We have keys to a van and keys to a motorcycle. Now, we didn't buy the van and the motorcycle. We're using that as a, we're going to get it to you, and we're just so happy. And I just I just want to say thank you because um, our church knows, but... Um, I'm going to get a little. My daughter was with Renee in Gabon for three months. And I just want to thank you personally. Um, her time there. Um, and we just prayed for her. And um, it has been an awesome time. And I just love what you're doing. I love your staff and your team. You're going to be right out here after service. So go see Renee and she'll answer any questions that you have. You can even figure out where Gabon is on a map. Um, just express our love to Renee, and then tomorrow, right after the 1130 service, there'll be a short presentation. But thank you, congregation, and extend your hand. Let's pray for Renee as we uh, conclude our service today. Father, I thank you for this godly woman who answered your call to go to the other side of the world with a language that she didn't speak and was willing to learn it. It would have been easy for her to stay in an area that was comfortable. But she was obedient to your calling. And I just pray that during her time here that you would bless her and guide her. I know that while for us it may seem like a wonderful thing being here home back in America, in a lot of ways she left her heart and her family in Gabon. She's going to be traveling, traveling a lot and she's going to be working a lot and sharing a lot. As hard as it may be, I do pray that she would get rest. Beyond that, I pray that she would hear your voice, maybe in a way that she hasn't in a while. That you would give her dreams and visions when she goes to return, maybe answers to long-time problems that have been there. Be with her team that's in Bangalore. Be with Jeff and his wife Amy. And Lord, just guide the entire hospital. Um, be with Simplice as he's now the medical director. Lead them, Lord, in the incredible work that they're doing. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen. We love you, Renee. Thank you. God bless you. We'll see you next weekend.